the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the Bain E-Arc sparks across the sky and the world looks up in wonder. Shopping chores at holiday stores. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. And we continue with part two of a two-part series with Tom Crapman, this time discussing his novel, A Pillar of Fire by Night, which is his latest entry in the Carrera science fiction series. We talk about the military setting and the characters and all the amazing stuff that goes into the conflict on Terra Nova, where A Pillar of Fire by Night takes place. And, of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Lo, on the internet in the east, the Bane E-Arcs for December have arrived. Now an E-Arc is what we now call the Earth after having discovered that all of the planets in all of the solar systems in the entire universe are actually little boring levitons, and Earth is the only green place with a nice climate and lots of different sorts of animals and plants. Metaphysicians are now working on finding a portal to a more interesting universe where maybe there's unicorns. Wait, that's not right. That's not what an eARC is. An eARC is an electronic advanced reading copy. Now these are ebooks that you can get that are an advanced copy of a novel that's coming out in three, four months or so from now. We do this so that you who love a series can get the, the next book in the series, or you can try out new writers. These are copy edited, but not proofread, which means you'll find interesting deviances in them from the print book, which you may want to get when it comes out as well. December eARCs include a great new anthology put together by John Ringo and Gary Poole that is set in John's Black Tide Rising universe, a post-apocalyptic science-based zombie series. Civilization has fallen. Everyone who survived the plague lived through the fall. That terrible autumn when life as they had known it ended in blood and chaos. Nuclear attack submariners, or submariners, however you like, facing sudden and unimaginable crises. Paid hunters on a remote island suddenly cut off from any hope for support. Elite assassins, never made it retirees. Bong-toting former soldiers, there are seven and a half billion stories of pain and suffering, hope and struggle crying out from history. These are those stories. These are the voices of the fall. Also out in December is Moon Tracks by Travis S. Taylor and Jody Lynn Nye. Race Around the Moon, Barbara Winton and the rest of the Bright Sparks, Dr. Keegan's bright team of youthful scientists, are competing in the first ever race to completely circle the moon. The sparks must count on one another as they face thousands of kilometers of unknown dangers where a simple accident can have fatal consequences. And we have a third arc out. This one's a really cool debut novel by Martin Shoemaker. It's called Today I Am Carrie. Machine Human Carrie. Mildred has Alzheimer's. 
As memories fade, she acquires the aid of a full-time android to assist her in everyday life, Carrie. Carrie takes care of Mildred, but its true mission is to fill the gap in Mildred's past. After Mildred passes on, Carrie must find a new purpose. For a time, that purpose is Mildred's family, to keep them safe from harm, to be of service. Carrie struggles. Carrie seeks to understand life's challenges. Carrie makes its own path. Carrie must learn to live, to grow, to care, to survive, to be. Today I Am Carrie, E.Arc, by Martin S. Shoemaker. Moontracks, E.Arc, by Travis S. Taylor and Jody Lynn Nye. And Voices of the Fall, E.Arc, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole, are all available right now exclusively at Bain eBooks. This is part two of a two-part interview with Tom Kratman discussing A Pillar of Fire by Night. Part one is available last time on the podcast. I want to welcome Tom Kratman back to the podcast. Hello, Tom. Hello, Tony. In 1974, at age 17, Tom Kratman became a political refugee and defector from the PRM, the People's Republic of Massachusetts. We've talked about your background a little before. By virtue of joining the regular army, um, you were a uh, history-reading teenager, as I recall from our previous conversations. Um, Pretty much, yes. Um, there's actually a funny story there. Um I, I was self-taught, sort of self-taught, to read um, before I turned three. What it was was I had a whole bunch of kids' books, 126 of them, as a matter of fact. And my um, my mother and my grandmother and my aunts would take turns reading these stories to the point where I had every one of them memorized. It was a very quick jump from memorizing the kids' books to identifying what, you know, okay, that has to mean D. And that... That means a little stop when they're finished with this, this one thought here. So anyway, Mother took me down to the uh, library in South Boston to get a, um, a library card. And I picked out some books for myself, and none of them were from the kids' section, and the librarian didn't want to let me have any of the books. She said I couldn't read them. My mother insisted that I could. Um, so she tested me on a book called The Battle of Midway. I don't remember who, there's a lot of books called The Battle of Midway. I don't remember who wrote that one. Um, and I wish I had a copy still, but in any case, I passed the test. So I was the only two-and-a-half-year-old in South Boston with an adult life. <laughs> what, uh, what, is, what is this place anyhow, this, this Terra Nova, that, um, that the career books take place on? Um, you give a pretty good summation of it at the beginning of, of, of A Pillar of Fire by Night. We were talking about careers and nukes, and um... yeah, he um, so he's been he's been assassinating the the clan of the guy who, who organized and commanded the attack on, that killed his wife and kids um, to drive them to a safe. Their, um, mm -hmm. And when he's got them in, in their compound, and he's got this guy a prisoner. Um, and he's got a, he uses a nuclear weapon and a stealthy glider and delivers the nuke, and it's a fairly large one, about three and a half megatons. He delivers it to the family compound. 
before it goes off, he asks the guy, <laughs> before it lands, he asks the guy, you know, I could say, I could spare your clan. All I have to, you know, you just tell me to nuke uh, your version of the Kaaba, which has one stone from the original Kaaba in it that was taken from Earth. You know, I, 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 could have, I could destroy that instead, if you'd like. And, and the guy thinks, you know, he, he, he says destroy the Kaaba, the new Kaaba. And Carrera says no. <laughs> I'm going to kill your family instead. But, but, but no, that was just you and God know that your religion is a fraud. And you're a fraud. And then the guy's family goes up and along with the whole city. He kills the whole city. Um, the effect of which ultimately is to convince the Muslims that a the bomb had been held by this guy's Mustafa's clan, and that it went off on its own, indicating that their entire war effort, because it is an Islamic war effort, Al Qaeda is um, Islam's overseas deployment force. Um, it is the wrong thing to be doing, and they just stop all support of it, which basically kills the war. You know, there may be a little bit around the edges here and there, but the war is over once he nukes the city and makes them all think that the hand of God has punished them. Mm. Um, which, you know, given the clan that the bomb went off in, oh, and they can see exactly where Ground Zero was, it's going to be a big friggin' crater, uh, that's not an entirely unreasonable inference for them to make. Um, and it's a... Then he collapses. Just he's a mass murderer. He knows he's a mass murderer. He's been working himself like a dog for about I don't know eight or ten years now without a break. Um, in fact, he doesn't even take vacations. He takes his second wife along with him wherever he goes, <laughs> and their kid, uh, so he doesn't yeah. have to take vacations. Um, and he goes back to Balboa, and he's sort of. Um, He's, he's semi-broken, and he needs a long rest. Uh, unfortunately, he's already set things up for war with the Torin Union. And he's the only one. He keeps his plans in his head. And, and he'll parcel out little bits of this and that for his staff and subordinate organizations to do. But the big thing is in his head, or it's locked up in safes where nobody can see it. Safes under guard. Um, so he finally gets browbeaten by a couple of his subordinates into coming back to work. But he's not quite the, the, you know, the machine of revenge that he used to be. He's not as certain. Um, he's, he's not as confident. He's not as energetic. Uh, and he's not as healthy. He's got issues in all those areas. But, you know, he, he makes himself continue the preparation for the war with the Torin Union, at some point, his boss, the president of Balboa, asks him to tone it down and see if they can't make peace. And, and he does that in one way, even to, ends up having a conference on a boat with the Torin commander. And in another way, he demonstrates, he offers up one of his cohorts as a blood sacrifice um, against a battalion of Torrens to demonstrate, oh, and he's got a lot more mobilized around the edges, um, just in case it goes and turns into general war, but the idea is to demonstrate that his citizen soldier militia are competent and well-led, well-armed, well-trained um, to induce the Torrens to make peace. They would almost make, and they, it looks like they're going to have peace, but there is a government in exile um, 
that arranges a really horrifying incident with some women from the Torin Union. I mean, they're gang raped, they're tortured to death, and it's all videotaped and released. And the Balboans take the blame for it. And so the war is going to be on. Well, it's the war he planned for, so they lose. Just because he made efforts in the, in the direction of peace, um, it, it, does, it doesn't necessarily follow that he stopped making preparations for war. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, a hallmark of the entire series and what makes it so much fun. One of the things is that Carrera plans like hell, and, and you don't surprise him. Uh, and if you do, he's still got other plans. And then the other thing is is that he is quite willing to take massive retribution uh, to the point of utter annihilation if if you don't give up when it's time to give up, if you're the bad guy. Um, right. He's not just a first-century um, Terranovan. He's a first-century Earther. He, he's about as Roman as you're going to find. Yeah, and... As we open a pillar of fire, uh, the Tauran Union is starting their invasion, right? We, we prepared right. Well, for actually this invasion. Yeah. One of the things, he didn't, he wasn't certain the Torans would go to war no matter what unless they had the Zhang, the, uh, the basically the Han colony, Han empire. Um, so he provokes the Han into getting into the war. And he's been preparing for that, too. And the hand can only come really in one direction. And in order to do that, they have to take a particular island. And the island is more fortified than the Maginot Line was, with more artillery. Um, and he has a trick with the artillery that I don't want to spoil for anybody. But the hand is hit the island and are almost completely repulsed. They do manage to grab and hang on to a small piece of it. But they can't expand from there. They can't even get close to it now that they know what's waiting for them. So they bounce off, and they sort of pull a, a landing out of their asses and land somewhere else. Then the Torin Union um, invades in a pillar of fire. And so as we, as we open, our, we have Carrera. Um, we have uh, another character that we see a lot in the book is Omar Fernandez, who is his uh, spy master. Um, head of intel yeah and they're not just uh, they're they're effectively rounding up uh, any kind of intelligence that the Torn Union has but they're also successfully sort of uh, planting the idea in the 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 other side's head that they're not prepared and that (laughs) they're in disarray well, and, and that's where the, the Torrens bouncing off and pulling a landing out of their ass sort of comes in. I don't make a big deal of it, but it's true nonetheless, that um, there are two things <coughs> that Carrera didn't entirely plan for. One was that the uh, Torrin Union, at least it, the planning was late and a bit hasty. One was that the Torrin Union would effectively take over in a neighboring country, which is scared to death of him. Um, that front was something he wasn't quite prepared for. The other was that the the Jean would attempt a landing somewhere else um, after being defeated on the island, uh, and that they would be able to support a substantial army, and, and they figure out in a way that he hadn't figured could be done. 
but they found a way to do it. I actually consulted with a guy named Larry Fry, who used to build ports for the Navy. Uh, he sent me all kinds of reading material on how to build a port out of nothing. <laughs> so, um, anyway, yeah, the, what he—the thing is, the guy who who is commanding the Toran invasion, he's been beaten, he's been stymied by Carrera once and thrashed by him once, and he's a competent officer, if initially a bit of an asshole. He becomes a lot more sympathetic in this book. This is Bernard uh, or Bertrand Jaunier. Yeah, Jaunier. Um, Jaunier. He's a Gaul. And, uh, yeah, he's a Gaul, and, and he's, he's based on someone, but I won't mention who he is. Most pe- many people could figure out who he is if they tried. Um, and yeah, he does become a lot more sympathetic, even though he starts as a flaming asshole. But I mean, his confidence is is just not entirely there. And so he, he's constantly at war with himself. Is this a trap? This is too easy. This shouldn't be working. This, should, this is a trap. It's got to be a trap. And everybody sort of convinces him, no, I don't think so. I think this time Carrera actually made a mistake. Um, and, of course, he made two mistakes. They just weren't the mistakes that was, you know, that concerned him. And In fact, he's leading every deployable unit in all the armed forces of the Torin Union, which have more than the European Union does, by the way. They're substantially larger. He is leading every one of them into the largest artillery ambush in human history. 2,700 guns, mortars, and rocket launchers are waiting for them, enough to deluge with fire and steel shards at least 400 square kilometers. Um... And he's got some other tricks up his sleeve besides that. But it seems like at first that that they're winning. He, and Carrera, it seems like at first they're winning, but of course this is drawing them in further, right? This is the first about about a quarter of the book, so we're not really giving much away to uh, to get into this. Yeah, there's a, basically he, he sacrifices troops uh, and, and puts his best friend, the guy who, who came up and said, an obvious case of self-defense corporal, let the gringo go. Um, he's, he's putting his, his best friend and his best friend's core, and it's a good-sized core, um, basically letting them be surrounded and at risk of being starved out. He lets troops get overrun. Um, he leaves a, a chunk of his artillery park out there to be captured, apparently. He leaves a lot of ammunition. A lot of ammunition is left behind when they have to run away when the Torrens land. Where is it that they land? Um, there's a river to cross, for one thing. They, they land on either side of a smallish city of about 100,000 called Cristobal. Um, or Cristobal, if you put the proper accent on it. Um, and the, the city and its environs is where that core, Jimenez's core, the fourth core, is trapped. Uh and that they need, say, in order to get to the city, the capital, and win the war, uh, even though they've caught, they, they have good reason to think that they've caught Carrera with his pants down around his ankles from behind, um, they need a more substantial port to support all the troops and to bring in all the supplies necessary to, um, to take the capital and win the war. In order to bring those in, there's a bunch of little bitty ports, you know, but they're they're either too far away, or they are in fact really really small. The Torrens also surprise them a little bit, a little bit, 
in um, utilizing an ancient uh, natural port um, called Puerto Lindo, or Puerto Linda. Um, they, they it shouldn't be able to do as much for them as it's doing, but they figure out a way to make it do more. Um, as much for, but they really need to take this city, and so they're stuck with fighting through some fairly impressive fortifications around the city and then into the city, and it's just bloody as hell. And they're not entirely up for it. Um, and then at a certain point in time, and that's where I really want to cut it off because I'm going to be giving away too much. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, there's a lot of um, interior uh, viewpoints of that. And, and a lot of the guys on Carreras, I mean, we, we know as readers from the very start that that Carreras got some, we don't know exactly what, but we know a lot of it. Uh, we know things are brewing and that Carreras got a lot of stuff up his sleeve. Um, so it's, it's not a, it's not a subterfuge to draw us in. We don't really think that they're going to, uh, to, that, that Carreras going to lose, although it could be possible that this, this, uh, isolated, uh, um, military unit that he's allowed to become surrounded would be destroyed. Um, and there's a lot of uh, really good interior viewpoints of the soldier's point of view in there. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And like the tripwire, the the mines they're worried about, the uh, the attacks and and such. Well, and the uh, and the Tarans, uh There's a really nice paratrooper moment as well where they're coming down. <laughs> How scary that has, that must be. You talking about Werner, Werner? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you know it, but Vanner's a barfly of old standing. What are they? What are some of the weapons they have? What 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 are they fighting each other with? This is the future, but it's not really a hugely advanced future. There are some changes, and there are some similarities. Well, that that's another. It's not a way to read the book, but it's something that I've got in there. Is that I um, I play around a lot with high tech, low tech mixes. Um. And I at least make a, a prima facie case that there's um, a kind of synergy and cost-effectiveness to that that we don't see in the West very often. So, for example, Carrera has a whole bunch of obsolete fighters. They're jets, but they're you know first generation or second generation at best. And he's got zero launch length launch systems. Basically, they, the jets rocket up into the air, and then you hope your, your jet starts. And he expects, you know, when, when the system is briefed to him, he asks, okay, what will our casualties be if we send this up against the Torrens? And you know, so we argue, the, the research and development group um, says, we argue about that quite a bit. Mostly we're between 95% destroyed and uh, 100% complete annihilation. But we still think they'll give you a few hours of free maneuver time. You know, if that's one thing. Another thing are stealth gliders that he uses to bombard uh, certain targets in the Torrin Union. One of those is, is particularly good, I think, because it goes over a soccer game and blows up over the stadium. Nobody's heard from it exploding, but it starts raining money down onto the stadium, which starts the biggest soccer riot, riot in history, which kills hundreds of people in the Torrey yeah. Union, and at the propaganda point makes them look like money-grubbing buffoons. Yeah, no, that's a psyop. Yeah. <laughs> it's like giving a pretty good at psyops. 
psyop rather. He he um you know whether it's awarding medals for valor to his enemies or finding the particular fracture that he can stick a knife in and start twisting. Um, he, he's pretty good at that sort of thing in general. That was actually one of college jobs. Oh, another psyop, another weapon, really. He knows who is a prisoner and who isn't in the Torn Union, of the Torn Union forces from the second invasion. The Torrens don't know. Because he got them all. He got the lot. Right? So, yeah. he sends... He gives the Torrens... He sends them a list of, of the casualties. But the list has been deliberately doctored. So there are people who are supposed to be dead that are in fact alive. And people who are alive that... Uh, who, who are listed as alive that are in fact dead. Okay, so the Torrens announced casualties, right? Well, he's got Khalid with... Um, <laughs> A, a, a computer and a printer, a list of addresses that he got from his prisoners, the prisoners that he listed as dead, and college sends checks to the families of the prisoners that are supposed to be dead, say you know, or, or that are dead, saying that um, you know your your husband, your son, your whatever was killed in action. We're sorry about that. We know the Torn Union hasn't given you any support. We hope this will tide you over until they get their act together. He spends, you know, a few million bucks on that, chicken feed, really, on that scale of war. And the effect is pretty good. Yeah, that's a cool idea. Has anybody ever actually done something like that in history, or is that a Crapman original idea? I think it's original, but it, it comes from something that um, comes from an idea that I had when I was a kid, really, during the Vietnam War. The um, the Rhodesians, well, that, that war hadn't really quite kicked off yet, but... They always made it a point when they killed a gorilla, a tear, to identify the village the guy came from and uh, bring his body back to his home village so they could so the villagers could see the results of supporting the terrorists. Right? Well, before I heard about mm-hmm. that, I was in Vietnam. The v, the uh, NVA had a a habit that their their chain of command couldn't break them off. They kept diaries. Right, secret diaries where they recorded everything. Good source of intel for us when we paid enough attention to it. Among the other things in the diary um, would be very often home addresses. And it occurred to me that rather than dropping bombs on North Vietnam, thereby you know blowing thousand dollar holes in dirt roads that could be filled with fifty bucks worth of coolie labor, we would be better off palletizing the guys we killed. Packaging them up with a an AK, 300 rounds of ammunition, a letter of apology, a description of the action in which he was killed, a letter of condolence to his relatives, um, and a book on resisting the North Vietnamese draft, and dumping him, his body, on his hometown. It would be a totally dispersed target, so they could never get uh, an air defense concentration like they had around Hanoi and Haiphong. It would be very hard to stop us. And it would be hurting them in a way they couldn't deal with rather than helping them in a way they could. So it's sort of, the idea kind of came from that. It took a I mean, I thought about it some more, and, you know, how could I use this? But it was, that's basically where it started, an idea I had when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a cool idea. The, uh, the cover of the book has a tank on it. I'm wondering if this is one of those tanks where the turrets have been taken off and it, and it just shoots 
<laughs> plastic explosives, <laughs> which struck me as a very destructive. We fired a, um, I guess, I think it's about a 90-pound high-explosive plastic charge from a combat engineer vehicle at a tank. And we had uh, pigs, I think it was, strapped inside the tank. And I've, I've echoed this in a couple of different ways before then. Um, strapped into the crew positions. And, and the idea was to see what the HEP would do. And it, it killed the crew and wrecked the tank. Uh, and one of the pigs, and I think it was a pig in the gunner's position, the coaxial machine gun was knocked out of its, its rack and driven straight through the pig's chest. Uh, they, they all died from it. Um, and yeah, that is a, it's an obsolete tank from which the, the turret has been removed, a casemated fighting compartment built up, a great deal of something analogous to Chobham armor put on front of it, and worn out 152 millimeter guns were cut down, muzzle brakes put on, and they were mounted in it expressly to fire um, large 100 pound roughly charges of hemp at, um, at tanks. And there, I, I, I don't remember how many of those he has. It's uh, 60. He's got a few hundred of them. I think maybe 600. Yeah. they. I mean, he's. they have some some pretty impressive tanks, Tarn Union, but they, Carrera has been stockpiling them. He's, he's got some hidden, and he's got these conversions. He's got a lot of... Uh, a lot of surprises, artillery-wise, right? There's close to 30, um, roughly 26 to 30,000 ton freighters, many of them Roros, that he's been secreting equipment on for a long time. And he uses the interval um, between the first invasion and the second invasion to bring all that stuff home. Yeah. Well, what do you, I mean... It, there's a lot about ground preparation in this book and how important it can be. How how realistic is it that um, I guess in a in a society that's on a war footing you could you could do what Carrera's done here? Yeah, um, the the problem is could somebody do it? Well, it would require it require a lot of things that aren't particularly likely to get together. They do in this case. I mean, they're not, it's not impossible that they should get together, but they're not overly likely. Um, but the real, the real big one is the money. And in order to get the money, I mean, there's, there are some Arab countries that have that kind, some oil Arab countries that have that kind of money, but they don't have the military material, the soldierly material. Um, Balboa has enough of it, and he recruits all over the Spanish-speaking part of that country, the, of that world. Um, for for willing troops, um, if you've got the money, it could be done. If you don't have the money and don't have a way to get it, no. So he's got the he's got a way to get the money. He does, and so he can do it. Um, what are the uh, the big one of the big things? And we hear about them early. Um, so it's it's not a it's not a giveaway to say that one of these things might go off is the volcanoes. What are those? Someone asked me about, or asked about that, or commented on it in a review um, on Amazon, and I don't think he thought about it. He expressed doubt that they would work. I have the same doubt that there would be enough oxygen in the air for them to work, which is why they also contain um, tanks of liquid oxygen to make sure they keep working. 
what they are is very large fuel air explosive mines, and they're they're buried in places that they're not likely to be looked at or looked for, and they're extremely secret, very very secret. Um, possibly, and they're they're not secret just for what they can do. They're secret for what they say about what he thinks he can do. Um, because if the Torin, if John Yeh found found one of those, he'd smell a trap. Um, big time smell a trap. And uh, yeah, and the, the the thing is, they're just huge fuel air explosive bombs. Yeah, to the extent that they're more powerful than some small nukes. Well, they're more powerful than a, a Davy Crockett's nuke, say, which was only a fraction of a kiloton, a small fraction, actually. It was I think Davy Crockett was in the order of 8 or 10 or 12 tons. They're, think of the, um, that, well, the mother, they're bigger than the mother of all bombs. They're several times bigger than that. They're bigger than the Russian uh, father of all bombs is alleged to be. That may have been faked. Um they can be really, really big because they don't have to move by aircraft. They're already in position. And, you know, Carrera can read a map. Anybody can read a map. Um, he knows where his defenses really are. So he knows pretty much where he can stop them. Therefore, he knows where they're going to take up defensive positions, and that's where the vol- and, and he knows where he's going to try to break through later on, and that's where the volcanoes are. I, I don't remember now. I think there were 13 of them. Uh, I'm not certain. I think it was 13, though. Yeah, and the um, that oxygen supply is also a, a way of sort of having a safety for the things, right? The the safety is that they're on a seismic trigger. Okay, it takes an explosion or an earth tremor of a certain power within a certain distance to make them go off. And you would think the Torrens are bombing everything everywhere, and so. They might set one off inadvertently, which would give the game away. No, they're on they're on a timer, and they only are sensitive to it every other day for a very brief period of time. So the odds are actually pretty good that they will not be detonated early. And you've got a a specific set of artillery that is it's two batteries. Um, oh yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Because um, that is my favorite bit of writing in the book is when you describe if a sh- if a shell could be said to have pride, uh, this one would. Yeah, I, I I do that a lot. It's one of a re- I suppose uh, relatively few writing strengths is anthropomorphizing animals and inanimate objects, and it's just a little joke I, between me and the reader, you know. Well, it's 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 also poetic in a way, in a in a sort of deadly and scary way, in that the the shell is, it's supremely made to do just that job, which is to set off one of these volcanoes. Yeah, yeah. It, it would be very proud to be doing so if a shell could feel pride. That's true. Yeah, and, and it's I mean it it does it feels like uh you know sort of like Invictus or something in the in the way that you. In the in the cadence of your prose there anyway I thought it was great little segment there uh, and it's toward the end I, I think the thing so you can't piss off lefties right what's that not all of them a lot of them 
And I think the thing that pisses them off is not that I can't write, no matter what they say, but that I can. <laughs> there are better writers than me out there, I, I think. Uh, I'm pretty sure, even. Uh, no, that's an understatement. I'm utterly certain that there are better writers than I am out there, but I can still write. Well, yeah. Well, we think so. <laughs> or we wouldn't keep publishing. And more than that, you also sell, which is also a good trait for a writer to have. So... We're happy about that. A lot more on Kindle than in hardcover. And uh, one of the well, advantages to Kindle, and it's especially true for me, you mean you know that Dostoevsky thing is if a gun is shown in the first scene, it has to be used by the third or whatever it is? I, I think that's bullshit. Okay? Um, mm-hmm. It may be true for plays, which are very short-duration things, um, where, at, where and people will, you know, tend to forget unless it shows up early, but in a novel, it's not true. You know, you could introduce, and I think I've actually done this, you could introduce something in the first book and not have it show up till the seventh book. You may want to, you know, hint at it a little bit in books two through six, but, um, you know, for example, the volcanoes, I think, first showed up in the second book. And and they were hinted at a couple of times in the subsequent books, but they're not used until the seventh book. And in a novel... That's kind of a fun, well, from my point of view, it's a fun game to play with the reader who says, oh, no, no way, no way, no, no, no. And then he goes back, he thinks about it, and he goes back to an earlier book, and he says, oh, yeah, way, I guess. Um, it, it's a way of, you, you talked about the, the reader isn't surprised because they can see it. But when you're giving the reader insights into people's thoughts and you're showing them all the action from a from a different perspective, how the hell do you surprise them if you don't do stuff like, Show the gun in the first book and not have it used until the seventh. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is, it, in this case, this is a, a big story that stretches over a bunch of books. So and one So you would have to. Yes. Um, we're not done yet. <laughs> so, um, it, by the way, I wanted to, before we uh, finish, um, talk about this nonfiction piece that we have up at Bain.com. Now, this is, uh, it, it touches on the career uh, books, and, but it's also sort of a broader um, essay. It's about planning for war. What induced you to write this, and what, what is this essay? Oh, um, mostly it's frustration with the Army and the Marines. They know better. The Army and the Marines could tell you how many truck companies they need to support a corps of X size at X distance from a port. They cannot give you a principled or a set of principles that really stands scrutiny to drive the size and shape of an infantry battalion. The overriding principle of military organization, not just with us, but all across the Western world, is maintenance of the maximum feasible number of generals. Everything else is subordinate to that. Okay, and one of the reasons it's subordinate to that is... Well, it's, it's internal politics. You need generals to talk to Congress and to fight the bureaucratic fight with the other services. It's not that we need generals, that many generals, uh, objectively. I think we still have more with an army of uh, uh, under 500,000 now than we had in World War II with an army of about 8 million. You know? Why? The bureaucratic fight, the budgetary fight, the public relations fight, the political fight uh, with the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines. And allies. Oh, allies, too. We've contaminated them. They've contaminated us. So anyway, um, you know, I've got 
I don't know, somewhere, some of them I think are in my office from where I'm speaking, and some of them I think are in a box in the garage. Uh, I've got tables of organization for just about everything you're going to find in the Carreraverse. It's, it's, some people count sleep, count sheep to go to sleep. I don't. Uh, I, I write tables of organization in my head, and I go to sleep that way. It's just a subject that's interested me since I was a kid. And in the course of, of reading history and writing up the, um, the organizations for the Carreraverse uh, and thinking about other organizations for the last, oh, I suppose, 50 years, I hadn't really organized them into a set of principles, but nonetheless, I, I'd identified most of the principles that are in that essay. And the essay was an opportunity for me to actually put the principles down. And someday, when America has lost a war, because we've got 499,999 generals and one private to make the coffee, um, people can go to the essay, if they're of a mind, and at least find a reasonably well thought out, maybe not complete, because, you know, it's, it's an infinite subject, but a reasonably well thought out set of principles around which a military can be built. Well, the uh, we've divided it into three parts, and we are uh, this month, December, we'll see the uh, the, the completion of that uh, that essay. And that I did a reading for that, by the way. It's up as a podcast. I put a, a spot for it on the bar and on Facebook. Um, a, a link to it. Um, I'm going to read the second one. I don't think I'm going to read the third and fourth ones, though I might. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to do a different podcast on care and feeding of your right-wing death squad to um, educate the uh, the extreme left of the day on just how badly they're fucking up. <laughs> because they, um, <clears throat> and they may have... No, they didn't. It, it's there. If you uh, go to YouTube and punch in my name, uh, it's the Sayings of Colonel Tom, Episode 2, Organizing for War. Well, that'll get us there. So, what are you working on now? I hope and pray it's the book that I've been waiting for for all these years, <laughs> Fallen Career, which is he finally takes the goddamn uh, battle to Earth. Is that going to happen? No. Oh, okay. Because Lord's like basically told him that you know, watch out at the end of uh, Pillar Fire by Night. She's, she's read off the declaration of war between Bal, the Democratic Republic of Balboa and United Earth, yes. But to actually get to Earth, is going to re- there, there's some intervening steps, and it's not that easy. Oh, okay. Well, what are you working on next? What I'm actually okay. working on now is, um, well, I, four things, I suppose. And I don't multitask for shit, so I say there's four things in the, anymore I don't. There's four things in the hopper, but I can only do one at a time. I'm trying to get out the um, the Carreraverse prequel anthology, the Wars of Liberation, where the various colonies throw off uh, the United Nations and establish themselves as independent countries. And I'm waiting on one story for that. And the girl who's doing it, she's a good writer. Um, she's actually an Oxford alum uh, and, a, and a STEM PhD. Um, and uh, she's the only person ever shot me. Yes, she did, actually. Um, yeah? Sort of. Yeah, yeah, she did, sort of. 
if you look at uh, some of the pictures of, of Liberty Con, oh, geez, when was it? It was 2016 or 2017 on the range. I think it was 2016. Uh, on the range, um, she had a, a, a borrowed revolver, the Ginger Cochran's grandfather, or father's revolver, or grandfather's revolver, maybe, that was just a little out of time. So every time she shot it, it was split, shaving off a little bit of the bullet and launching it backwards. Yeah, well, I see. one of the uh, basically scored my head just above my right ear, and it stung, but I didn't think anything much of it. I thought it was just, you know, escaping gases, Till one of the range safety said, uh, Colonel Kretman, did you know you're bleeding? And I said, um, no, much, fair amount, uh, where? Just above your ear, and I felt up and sure as shit. <laughs> the skin is split, the skull, you know, it's scored, and there's blood pouring down the side of my face. It wasn't her fault at all. But, yeah, she's the only one who ever shot me. Um, I've taken little pieces of shrapnel from grenades, but that's not the same thing. Anyway. Um, and that, that book is, uh, that's Terra Nova we're talking about, the name of the book, which is uh, scheduled... The subtitle is is in there as well. That is scheduled for August. That will be a Bane book uh, out in August. Seriously, jump through their ass. But I've been pretty careful about copy editing already, so it, it shouldn't be that hard. The cover's already done from Kurt. I think we can still get it done. <laughs> oh, we'll get it done. That's that's my book to see through. So we'll get it done, bad guy. I've already got the the copy editors are standing by. <laughs> I recruited a really elite team for that. Um, I've got an Air Force Academy gra- grad, Casey Zell, a West Point grad mm-hmm. uh, with a pension for finding IEDs the hard way, Justin Watson, who is being published in something else for Bain in a short, and, and is having something come out from Chris Kennedy. I, I think both of those uh, folks are people to watch for the future. Uh, Mona Lisa Fo- Foster, another one, she's a fine writer, is in it. Um, okay, it's... Um, Vivian, also known as V. Raper, yes, that's really her name. You think I had troubles with my name in high school? I'm sure she had worse ones. Uh, Mike Masser, Peter Grant, Chris Nuttall, Rob Hampson, Doctor Rob Hampson, uh, Mona Lisa mm-hmm. Foster, and I'm uh, Mona Lisa and I have been working on on a, a sort of time traveling spiritual romance, not between us. She were both happily married, um, but a book. Uh, that I don't know if it would be a Bane fit or not, but when we get it done, we'll let Tony look at it. Uh, Justin Watson, Casey Azell, Chris Smith, uh, Alex Macris, um, who's an interest. Alex has an interesting story. He's a Harvard law grad. Uh, Lawrence Riley, uh, although it's spelled rail e, uh, and myself. And uh, that's that'll be twelve stories and. Uh, a prologue, 11 interludes, and a postscript. Those will all be for me. And um, I, I, th- I think they're all pretty good stories, really, personally. Anyway, that's yeah. one thing. That sounds like a great lineup. The uh, Anyway, that's one thing I'm working on. The other one is I got about half done with the next career volume in all the editorial work for A Pillar of Fire um, showed up at that point and I lost momentum. Uh, and then Terra Nova, The Wars of Liberation came up, so I further lost momentum. Um, and I don't... <laughs> I do not multitask for beans, 
for about the last seven or eight years. Um, but it's it's in the hopper, and as soon as I finish Terra Nova, which should be the end of this before the end of this month, I'm going to go uh, charge hard on the next Carrera book, which is um, Days of Burning, Days of Wrath. And then after that, I want to let Carrera go for a while. That'll be the last part of that series. I may do a different series, probably will do a different series on the Conquest of Earth at some point in time. Reconquest of Earth, Liberation of Earth. Um, but I want to I want to get into some alternate history. Uh, there are four or five alternate histories that I'm interested in, and two of those I research. It's not really multicasting because I'm not doing anything except reading and making the occasional note. But two of those I, I research when I have time to. Um, those are um, I don't have a title for it. I've talked about it with Eric and uh, Tony. Uh, it may actually be in the form of a co-authorship, even though I don't ordinarily play without, well with others. Um, but a Roman legion, the 18th legion, as a matter of fact, um, is shot forward um, by one of Eric's free-flying Asidi shards to about 405 A.D. and fights its, and marches its way back to the Rhine in time to meet the barbarian crossing of the Rhine on New Year's Eve of, I think it's 406. So that's a real Roman legion, not the bullshit legions they had by that point in time after Adrianople. The, the, an, another one, if I keep doing it, is um, a, it, it's a Civil War anthology, the original form of which I discussed with Jim shortly before he died, and he wanted me to do it. Mm-hmm. And then he died, and I was in other things and so. Um, yeah. And then Newt Gingrich and, and Bill Forstian did exactly what I was going to do, except I think I would have done it better personally. They had to go to the War College. I was already at the War College on the faculty. I didn't need any input. Um, but in any case, the, 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 a third one would be um, Webster is not thrown from his horse, does not die in 1859, I think it is, runs for president in 1860, wins. The Civil War is delayed until slave. You know, the full ramification of Dred Scott uh, can start to run, which is that there is no such thing as free soil. And slaves show up on Long Wharf in Boston Harbor and Massachusetts, not South Carolina, secedes from the Union. Um, and that, that will be kind of fun, I think. Um, especially Billy Sherman on the southern side, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was down there uh, running a boys' school in Louisiana or something, right? When the... He was. He, he, it became eventually Louisiana State University. Um, it, Billy was an interesting case. We had a fellow company commander when I was a rifle company commander. Usually at some point in just about every staff meeting um, would refer to me as having a mind like Billy Sherman, a wonderfully intricate piece of machinery with all the screws just a little loose, which, you know, we're, may have been fair. I don't know. Maybe. Um, the fourth one I want to do would be um, Ho Chi Minh, when he's a pastry cook at the Parker House in Boston, which he was, um, comes under the wing of a Harvard ramen professor type. So instead of going to the Sorbonne and get, getting turned into um, Lenin, you know, Lenin with uh, epicanthic folds, he um, goes to Harvard and gets turned into Washington with epicanthic folds. 
Now, the reason I haven't I've, I've got a, I haven't assembled the kind of bookcase for that that I have for the other three, which are I've got a huge bibliography for all three of the others. Um, you know, bookcases full just for those. This one I've only got a couple of books on, and the reason why is that it's not clear to me that simply, you know, someone trying to teach Ho Chi Minh to be a George Washington is going to overcome his upbringing. And his upbringing was basically collectivized rice agriculture. From his point of view, socialism is going to work because he's been watching it all of his life. And I was talking, actually, with uh, Evil Penguin and uh, Rob Hampson about this at dinner the other day. And we, we had an idea of maybe how to make that work. But it's going to be a really hard sell to, to convince Ho Chi Minh that socialism isn't going to work. Because he's seen it work, as well as he's seen anything work all his life. So that one's really, really backburner, and I haven't done much with it besides buy a few books. Hmm. Well, it sounds cool. Um take I've never seen on Vietnam, which would be really, really interesting as well. Well, by God, Tom, I hope you uh, get to those soon, but finish the dang Carrera next. <laughs> so so we can find out. the. I, I promised Tony, as soon as the antho's done, I, I think I told her 12 weeks after I turn in the antho, uh, I'll be done with the next Carrera burst. Because I know everything that's going to happen. I don't have to think about it much. Um, the only thing I have to think about is whether whether Hamilcar's surrogate mother lives or dies. I'm still worried about that. I'm not sure how to go there. But uh, Hamilcar is career son. And he was sort of adopted by the uh the the pagan woman. She might she pretends pretended to be a Muslim as her whole tribe does, but she's not. She's a pagan. She was the one who decided he was the reincarnation of her god Iskan. When he was about three. <laughs> Uh, she was the one of whom I've written that if a Meg came to eat him, he'd have to eat her first, and she'd be kicking its guts out from the inside while it was swimming. Well, many of us are convinced that our children are are little godlings. <laughs> out now is at booksellers everywhere is is the big uh, invasion and repulse of invasion of Balboa novel that we've all been waiting for. It's called A Pillar of Fire by Night. Uh, it's a career. It's a great career uh, novel by Tom Crapman, and it is at booksellers everywhere. So, Tom, thanks for uh, talking to us on the podcast again. My pleasure. Uh, we should do this again sometime. Maybe when I get a book out again. <laughs> Probably. Folks, I enough. promise the next one is not going to be as long coming as the last one. That was part two of a two-part interview with Tom Crapman discussing his novel, A Pillar of Fire by Night. Part one is available last time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. 
The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 15 After the public farce was over, the real business was conducted. There was a small census and taxation office across the street from the Chamber of Argument, except this compound had secretly been claimed by the Inquisition. Amand had made certain that none of his twenty important guests had been followed. Though only a few of them were fellow inquisitors, all of his guests wore masks or veils to protect their identity. Their insignia and tokens of office were hidden. Amand was the only person who knew who everyone really was, and he was the only one whom they all knew by his real name. He wasn't particularly worried about any of them betraying him, because who would they betray him to? They all knew he had ears everywhere. The capital was a web of plots and secrets, and Omand was the spider at the center. One of his men brought in their final arrival. She was wearing a veil and introduced with a code name, but only an imbecile wouldn't recognize the young arbiter from Zaga, who had caused such a stir earlier. Excellent work. Amand congratulated the newest member of his conspiracy. You had the meeting from the palm of your hand, like adorable baby birds. Archer gave him a very respectful bow. It was my pleasure, but my Thakur wasn't expecting me to make any proposals. We were to remain neutral for now, I'll be severely reprimanded, possibly even demoted. Don't worry. A year from now, when we're rounding up all the untouchables, you'll be hailed as a visionary. I'm sure he will wait to see what the scribe's research finds before he announces my punishment. Artya sighed. The arbiters would debate, the scribes would pore over the scrolls, and a new report would be presented on the castless problem. Amand already knew what those reports should have said because, unlike most, he remembered their history. Legally speaking, the castless were a necessary evil, kept around because of the vague threat of an even greater evil. To the dispassionate law, it was all a matter of value. So to get what he wanted... Omand simply needed to rebalance the scales. I wouldn't worry too much, he assured her. Archie was rather attractive, and she struck him as intelligent, articulate, and conniving, all useful traits. If she had the stomach for hurting people, she would probably do rather well as an inquisitor. If the punishment is too severe for you to remain with your house, 
Then I'm certain an important assignment could open within the Inquisition. Your Thakur owes me an obligation or two. I am humbled by your generosity, Grand Inquisitor. She even managed to sound sincere as she said it, so she was also an excellent liar. It didn't matter if she had an aversion to torturing confessions out of witches or not. When someone of his starters offered an assignment, it was accepted. The other conspirators were already seated on cushions around a low table. The slaves who brought their refreshments were deaf, and if they had even the briefest suspicion that any of them was paying too much attention, he'd have them strangled and buried in the garden. It was amusing to him that most of his guests didn't know how to eat or drink while wearing a mask. Silk was best if you were planning on eating. Decorative porcelain or metal masks were saved for formal occasions or when one needed to make a statement. The trick was to keep it tight across the bridge of the nose and loose over the mouth and chin, then stick with finger foods in public. Amateurs. One nice thing about taking over a census office was all of the maps and population tallies were already here. Most of the non-people had been located, numbered, and registered for their convenience, because all houses had to pay annual property taxes, and castless were just a fleshy form of property, similar to, but sometimes less valuable than, livestock. For years, Ormand had been gently suggesting that the castlers were a terrible threat to society, so he'd been steering the many competing bureaucracies of the capital into doing all his preparatory work for him. Maps were spread across the table, and he was glad to see that the few members of the warrior caste who had joined his secret cabal were already making plans about how to conduct their war of extermination. Greetings, my friend. Omand told his fellow conspirators. Today, we welcome a sister to our ranks. There was some polite clapping as Artya took her seat. Excellent. Thank you. Omand surveyed the room. These were the people who were going to help him achieve his goals. Staging a coup and overthrowing the government was simply not a one-man job. That was another entry in Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a fair sky and a starship to sailor by. Plus, thanks plaudits and praise to Tom Crapman, author of A Pillar of Fire by Night. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 